Well, good morning, church family. I am not a bearded, balded Buddy Bell. I am Andy Johnson. I'm your missions minister, and it is my, it's my absolute privilege to get to be with you this morning to share some of the Word of God with you today. Uh, as we dive into our sermon, I want to begin by sharing with you a story. First of all, to set it up, as some of you are aware of, my bride Melissa has been gone for two weeks on a mission trip to the country of Namibia to serve missionary women from all over Africa who've come to be blessed uh, by this team that Melissa was a part of. And as some of you may be aware of, the Johnson home doesn't function quite as smoothly in Melissa's absence as it does in her presence. That probably surprises a lot of you, or none. Uh, but, but there were a few bumps in the road on occasion. I want to tell you about one of those. About two weeks ago on Saturday night, uh, I'd, I'd planned a little extra something fun with the kids, um, but earlier in the day I'd given them a list of things that I wanted to happen in their rooms. I'd been told that it had happened, and I assumed that that was the case. A little while later, uh, as we're getting ready for dinner, I go back to their rooms to, to call them in, and as it turns out, the list had been, had been blissfully ignored by my wonderful children. And me being the righteous man of God that I am, I promptly threw a fit. Uh, just, just a wall-eyed, honest-to-goodness parenting fit. Now, I know that most of you have probably never done this, uh, but, I, but I stomped and I pointed out flaws and, 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 I, and I stomped back to the kitchen. And I'm banging around in the kitchen uh, trying to get the finishing touches on dinner and Amelie comes into the kitchen at that point. Amelie is my nine-year-old and she walks in and she says, Dad, can I pray for you? So this little girl walks over and, and she lays her hand on me, the way Scripture tells you to. Lays her hand on me and she begins by praying that God would help her daddy to not lose his temper. Which is probably a good thing to pray for all parents from time to time. But then, get this, here's what she prays. She says, God, if there is any unwelcome spirit of anger that has come into this house, in the name of Jesus the Christ, I send it out and don't let it come back. That's a little girl who gets it. Some of you in this auditorium have been helping to teach my daughter to pray, and I'm grateful for that. But that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about warfare prayer, the kind of warfare prayer that a nine-year-old girl has the courage to pray over her grumpy father. That's the kind of prayer we're going to talk about today. Now, we've spent a couple of weeks already. This is week number three, swimming around in Ephesians chapter 6 as we look at the armor of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about prayer. But before we talk about prayer... We probably ought to do it. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into our text. Our Lord in heaven, we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would be upon each and every one of us in this place. Father, I pray that if there is anything that I have prepared that is not true, that is not from your word, then Father, I pray you would block my lips from speaking it. And then Father, I pray that everything that is truth, everything that you want your children who are gathered here today to hear, that you would open their ears to hear it that they would have ears to receive that which you want to tell them this morning. We pray all of these things through the name of Jesus the Christ and by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, if we're going to talk about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, we're going to start off by reading Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. So hear the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Finally, Paul's wrapping up his letter, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, our enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now this morning, the version of Scripture that I read might have been a little different from that which you've normally heard. I want to remind you that in this original letter, there were no chapter and verse markings. Those are things we've added to help, our, help us find our way around the Bible. In the beginning, this was a book, it was, this was a letter written by a guy to a church. And I don't believe that Paul intended for us to separate the conversation about the armor from the conversation about the prayer. And if you have a Bible, such as the NIV, that separates the two, you might miss the connection, this intimate connection that I think Paul intended for us to have. My friends, the how of going into battle with our armor is prayer. I want you to consider what he's just told us to do. This is, this is an enormous list of things, and they're the kinds of things that can only happen when the people of God pray. First of all, he's told us to stand. He comes back to it again, to withstand, to stand therefore, to stand firm. The only way we ever stand on, a, on, a, on, a, on ground that is, that is shaky all the time, the only way we ever stand is through prayer. He's also told us to, to put on several things. We put on truth like a belt. We put on righteousness like a breastplate. And, and we put on shoes that, that are the, the peace that comes from the gospel. And the only way that we live in truth and practice righteousness and experience peace is through prayer. And then we're told to take up a few things as well. We take up a shield that is our faith. We, we live into, we lean into the salvation that is, that is the helmet of salvation. And the only way that we are ever formed by the Word of God, the only way that we are ever made wise by His Word is through the practice of prayer. Now, I will be honest with you. This was a brand new thought to me. This connection between the armor of God and prayer. It was a brand new thought that I had to have explained to me by my bride. As she was working through the armor of God Bible study that so many of you women have gone through, she came to me and she explained this this connection between the armor of God and prayer. Prayer is not an addendum that Paul tossed on at the end of the armor. Prayer is a vital component to putting on and empowering the armor of God. Now in our fellowship, and I imagine a lot of fellowships, We talk a lot about being a New Testament church. We say that that's what we want to be. We want to be a church like the New Testament church. I want to tell you this morning, we cannot be a New Testament church if we are not a praying church. There is no such thing in Scripture as a non-praying church. Everywhere you turn in the book of Acts, they're praying. Chapter 1, Jesus tells them to wait for the Spirit. He says it's coming. They're praying. Chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and they devote themselves to four things. They devote, the new believers devote themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Chapter 3, Peter and John heal this guy who couldn't see, and they heal him on their way 
to pray because that is their practice. Chapter 4, some folks get released out of prison. The believers thank God for it. Spirit comes down, the place gets shaken, and the believers begin to speak with boldness, with a renewed sense of boldness. We need, we'll, we'll, we'll just skip ahead for a last example. Chapter 10, it's a pretty important chapter for those of us who are not Jewish. It's where the, it's where the, the church first begins to bring into the fold non-Jewish Gentile believers. And there are these emissaries who are sent from a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius, and they come to Peter, and they find him where? He's up on the rooftop, and he's praying. If we want to be a church that is a New Testament church, we have got to be praying. It is the mark of the church. So therefore, how do we define this? How do we define prayer, the kind of prayer that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6? First of all, it might be helpful to, to, to define what it's not. On the one hand, it is not a hit-and-miss hotline that you pick up and call from time to time, and it's just sort of by chance whether or not God answers or not. Prayer is not that. But on the other hand, it is not a name-it-and-claim-it, carte blanche, to get whatever it is that you're asking God for. It's not that either. One of the things that I've discovered, when I pray selfish prayers, the answer to my selfish prayers is usually God rebuking my selfishness in one way or another. I often don't have eyes to see what He's doing, But that seems to be how he responds to my selfish prayers, to root out that selfishness in me. So what I want to do this morning, we're going to to talk about prayer, we're going to try to define it, and then we're going to try to, to, to put some flesh on those bones here in just a minute. So to begin with, we're going to define it by saying, this is a definition provided by Tony Evans, saying that prayer is an earthly invitation to heavenly interference. Prayer is an earthly invitation to heavenly interference. My friends, we have been given by God in creation dominion over the earth. And we have two choices. We can choose to rule it without Him, or we can choose to invite Him in to do what He intends to do. And when we invite, when we pray to God, it is an invitation to Him to intervene on heaven as it already is in earth. That's why it is so important to bathe ourselves in the Word of God on a regular basis so that we can know the will of God, so that we can know the character of God, so that we can pray prayers that are in line with what God intends to see happen on this earth. A really key verse that we really need to consider this morning is John 15, 7. Uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the many promises that Jesus makes about prayer, and it's a really startling promise. What he, what he tells his apostles, he tells them, if you abide in me as a vine abides in a branch. Think about the way that happens. When a vine abides in a branch, it's stuck to it. It gets all of its life from it. It's formed from it. If you're abiding in me that way, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And the reason that's the case is because our wishes, our desires, are shaped by our abiding. If we are abiding in Him, the things that we want will be becoming more and more Christ-like. But friends, this is a journey. I don't think there's any among us today who could say that all of our desires have been brought captive and have been made Christ-like. One of the things that one of my mentors, Paul Blunt, told me as we were discussing what I should say this morning, he reminded me that it is a journey, that it is a journey that we are on, that we are all being conformed to the image of Christ by our abiding, and that as our desires get shaped by Him, then we will begin to pray the prayers that God wants us to pray. But one thing that I do know is that as we're on this journey, the people who make progress on the journey 
are the people who pray. We will not be making progress on our journey towards Christ-likeness if we are not praying. And before we go farther in building on this definition, I want to consider one more key verse when it comes to prayer. It's out of the book of James. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I want to tell you guys something. He's talking about us. He says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So we're going to talk about what he's talking about. He gives us a for instance. The for instance that he gives us is Elijah. You'll notice my son's name is Elijah, in large part because of the story that James is referencing found back in 1 Kings 18. Now, the setup for 1 Kings 18 is that it hasn't rained in about three and a half years. And if you live in an agrarian society, three and a half years without rain is a pretty big deal. So 18 opens with God coming to Elijah and saying, Elijah, I'm going to make it rain. That's good news. So Elijah goes to the king. Things don't quite unroll the way that Elijah might have foreseen, and they wind up having this power encounter at the top of Mount Carmel. That's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture where you wind up having Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, against the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah, who had been told to go tell them that rain's going to come, winds up calling down fire instead. Fire comes down, consumes the altar. The prophets of Baal are defeated. They all get killed. We don't talk much about that, but they do. The prophets of Baal are killed. And then after that, Elijah prays again. And he's... He prostrates himself before the Lord. Scripture tells us he prays face down with his face between his knees, praying so hard, asking God to send the rain. And what follows is a storm. The rain comes. And I want you to notice the timing in this. I think this is what James wanted us to see when he, when he reminded us of this section. God said it would rain, but it did not rain until his servant prayed. Elijah's prayers drew down onto earth what God already intended to do, but held off doing until his servant prayed. Now, some of you who are sitting here this morning are going to say to me, Johnson, that's great, but I'm no Elijah. I've got strongholds in my life. I'm still dealing with addictions. I'm still sinful. My desires aren't God's desires yet. Here's the good news. James, who, by the way, James, James never pulled punches in his letter, nor, nor did he ever candy coat anything. So if he says it, you can take him pretty seriously. James tells you that you're just like Elijah. He says, Elijah was a human just like us. And then he says that this prayer of his was powerful and effective because of his righteousness. Because of who we are in Jesus, we get to be lumped in with the Elijahs out of the Bible. Because we've been made righteous by what Christ has done in us. Our abiding in Christ makes us righteous, and therefore our prayers are powerful and effective. Now we've, we've seen this, we just may not have had eyes to notice what's going on around us. I want to remind you of just a few things that happened recently. This church kicked off the brand new year with 21 days of prayer. A lot of that praying was about our missionaries. Here's a few things that happened. First of all, the first day we pray, text message and says that she just slept through the night for the first time in years. And because of some health things, she's never able to sleep more than two or three hours at a time. And the first day we started praying, she slept through the night. Or how about this? David Knowles, he's our missionary chaplain to Alabama State Prisons. He had a pretty important meeting that fell, coincidentally, during that 21 days of prayer. 
God had something in store for that. At this meeting, much more happened than David intended. He had no idea that after this meeting, all Alabama state prisons would then be open to his Christ-based discipleship program. Or how about this? On an even grander scale than Alabama state prisons, one of the things I do as a missions minister is I try to keep abreast of security concerns in the countries where we have people serving. To that end, I received three different daily security briefing emails. Since I became your missions minister and began receiving those, I've not had a single week where something wasn't sent to me about one of the countries where we have people serving until we had our 21 days of prayer. Then I had a stretch of seven days where not a single country where we had people serving was in the news for any reason. Brothers and sisters, when, when righteous people pray, it affects the night's rest of a senior saint serving and it affects the political stability of nations. Now with this defined as an earthly invitation to heavenly interference, what's some of the flesh that we can put on these bones? There's lots of different directions we could go. I'm going to go in three. First of all, I want you to understand warfare prayer is worship. When we gather together in two or three or in 500, we do battle when we sing his songs. There is something that happens when the people of God gather together and use their voices to honor Him, to claim a space as a worship center, to fill this room with His praises, to proclaim truths, to speak to Him, to speak to each other and encourage each other. This is warfare. And our, part of our response to our sermon today, when, when, I, when I'm finally done, I'm going to sit down and we're going to begin worshiping. And we have an extended block of praise time set aside in which we're going to engage in the warfare that is worship. Jeremy and the praise team have picked out songs that are specifically to God. We've got a lot of songs that are about God. These are songs that are to God. These are prayer-filled songs. Now, one area, this is something I want you to consider, one area that our hymnody in English really lacks is warfare singing. We don't often openly rebuke our enemy in song except in one area of this building. See if you can complete these lyrics to this hymn. If the devil's in the way, we will run right over him. That was, that was really pretty sad. <laughs> try, let's try another one. If the devil doesn't like it, he can. He can sit on attack. We teach our children to engage in warfare through song, and then we bring them in here, and, and we no longer talk about warfare and prayer. We no longer rebuke Satan out loud. One of the things that I miss most about the tribe that we worked with in Burkina Faso, the Dagar tribe, is that as they developed their own songs, fully a quarter of the songs were openly warfare. They rebuked Satan and the lies that he was trying to tell them. They rebuked demons and idols by name in their songs. I want you to consider the impact of a group of believers gathered together in a region in the world where one in five babies doesn't live to see age five and seeing the, singing the song, Satan, you took my child before it was time, but one day you're going to get yours. Or how about this? Recently converted idol worshipers crying out. This is one of my favorite songs of theirs. Translated, it says, I got saved. Satan wants me back but he's not going to be able to because I'm with Jesus now. It makes him so angry, I bet he's got an upset stomach. And I love the word that they use there because it's not exactly a polite word. It's not the kind of word you'd normally use in mixed company, but they use it in worship to make fun of this enemy, to put him in his place. 
Their worship is a part of their warfare. That's why the Psalms matter so much to us. The Psalms have for centuries given voice to the deepest emotions that the people of God have. They allow us, they, they give us words to express our heartfelt love for God. They give us words to express our disappointment in Him through lament. And they give us words to fight our enemy. So one of our major resources, even if we don't have them, the songs, which by the way, that's a challenge to those of you who are songwriters and poets. Give us some warfare songs that we can sing. But in the meantime, we've got the psalms. And they can give voice to our warfare in worship. Secondly, warfare prayer is work. I would go so far as to say warfare prayer is hard work. Paul tells us to pray at all times, with all prayers, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He paints this passage from top to bottom with the word all. There's this sense of intensity, a sense of urgency that you cannot miss in what Paul's talking about when it comes to prayer. And this word that he uses for keeping alert is a really interesting word. It's a military word. It's what you would tell someone who's standing a watch, someone whose job it is to stay awake when everyone else is sleeping to make sure they stay safe. It's the same word that Jesus used with his apostles when he told them to stay awake because you don't know at what hour the master is going to come back. What Paul's telling us is that we're to stay awake in praying for each other. You can't go to sleep on the job when it comes to praying for him or people get hurt. Now, one of my missionary heroes is a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. You'll notice that my daughter's name, her middle name is Elizabeth. This was a woman who understood prayer and warfare. And many of you are familiar with her story. Her first husband was killed by an Ecuadorian tribe that they had hoped to make contact with to share the gospel with him. But she was not defeated. She continued living in Ecuador, and she was eventually, by the grace of God, able to live among the tribe who killed her husband for two years. And she took her three-year-old daughter with her when they went. But even past Ecuador, she continued to use her talents in the kingdom, battling the enemy on all sorts of fronts. And to give you an idea of of the kind of woman this was, she's listed in the credits for being one of the original translators of the NIV. That's how God continued to use this woman. She's a strong, gifted woman. I want you to hear what she has to say about prayer. Miss Elliot said, People who ski, I suppose, are people who happen to like skiing, who have time for skiing, who can afford to ski, and who happen to be good at it. Recently, I discovered that I often treat prayer as though it were a sport like skiing. Something you do if you like it, something you do in your spare time, something you do if you can afford the trouble. It's something you do if you're already good at it. But prayer is not a sport. Prayer is work. Prayer is no game. Prayer is the exact opposite of leisure. It's something to be engaged in, not something that we indulge in from time to time. It's a job that you give priority to. It is performing when you have energy left for nothing else in the day. It's been said before that you pray when you feel like praying. You pray when you don't feel like praying. You pray until you do feel like praying. If we only pray at our leisure, at our convenience, can we possibly be true disciples of Christ? Prayer is never easy. It is the weapon that the unseen enemy dreads most. And if he can get us to treat prayer as casually as we treat a pair of skis, then he will continue to have a foothold in our lives. My friends, nothing in life worth doing is ever easy. 
Remaining faithful in prayer, doing the hard work to see victory come about through prayer is not easy. Because remember, we have an enemy who is opposed to seeing it happen. Jesus gave us a parable to describe how we're supposed to pray. In it, he compared God to an unjust judge, and he compared us to a widow who needs help. And I really do believe that the comparisons between God and the unjust judge break down a little more quickly than the comparisons between us and the widow. This parable is there to instruct us how we are to pray to God. We bring our requests to him over and over and over, and we seek justice. We seek him to intervene. We're to pray the way that she did and trust that God's going to do ultimately what's best in the kingdom. Finally, sounds a little repetitive, this kind of prayer is warfare. This kind of prayer is war. It's the way in which we fight as Christians. You see, our enemy hates our prayers, and he works diligently to thwart them. We've already gone over in this sermon series several times how the enemy works to try to tempt us toward temptation. But, in my, but how many times have you ever noticed him working even in your prayers? You might, have, you might be wide awake, and you sit down to pray to God, and immediately you're just falling asleep. You're just fighting that sleep. Or maybe you're, you're in the middle of your day, you're feeling good, you're well organized, you've got your prayer list out, you pull it out of your wallet, you want to pray for these five people, and immediately your mind is just scattered. That's our enemy trying to defeat your prayers before you pray them. I noticed it myself as I was preparing for this sermon. One of the things that I committed to do is I was going to read the book of Ephesians every morning for seven days in a row to try and just get an understanding of, of where this fits in the context of Ephesians. It's, it's Paul's conclusion, so I wanted to see what else he was doing. And three out of the seven mornings, I was wide awake all the way through the book, and I fell asleep in my chair with coffee in hand in those verses, the verses 10 through 20. I think that's the enemy working in that. Um, he even made me spill my coffee one of the three mornings. Now, here's something that John Eldridge has to say when it comes to warfare. John Eldridge says, when it comes to doing good in the kingdom, always assume it's warfare. Something that I've noticed in my own life. Whenever I fail, my personal failings that come about as a husband or as a father when I throw a parenting fit, as a man or as a minister, my failings are almost always accompanied by a lack of prayer in my life. Failure in my life is usually accompanied by a failure to pray. When I'm on my knees, I get pushed around a lot less often. Now, before we leave this, I want to address a really neat section of Scripture that we almost never talk about. There's that that cool first half of Daniel with all the good stories in it about the the lion's den and about the fiery furnace, the the flannel graph stories. It's great. But then there's this other part of Daniel that's really kind of hard to understand. And I want to tell you a story that comes out of that. In Daniel 9, Daniel 9 opens up with Daniel telling God, I need an answer. Daniel comes before God, and he tells God, I'm going to come before you in prayer and in supplication. I'm coming before you with confession and with fasting, and I need an answer, God. Well, eventually, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel with a response. But it took him a while. It takes him about three weeks to get there. And as you turn the page into chapter 10... Gabriel explains to Daniel, the moment you prayed, God answered you and sent me. But along the way, I was opposed by the prince of Persia, a demonic force who stood in opposition to Gabriel and would not allow him to reach Daniel. 
And it wasn't until God sent another angel, the archangel Michael, to do battle with the prince of Persia that Gabriel was able to get to Daniel. Now, this, this, is, this is a crazy story, and there's lots of it that I don't quite understand, but there are a couple of things that I do understand. Number one, when the people of God pray, God responds. Number two, our enemy is opposed to that response, and he will fight against it tooth and nail. Warfare prayer is worship, it is work, and it is war. So now, right here before we end, what are some ways that our enemy can oppose our prayers? I just want to list a few of them that happen in my own life, and perhaps it'll strike a chord with you so that you can be aware of the enemy's schemes in your prayer life. First way he opposes them often for me is cynicism. I'll think, well, prayer works all the time except when I really need it to work. Then it doesn't work. Or maybe sometimes I think it doesn't even work at all. Sometimes I'll wind up attributing the action of God to coincidence. I threw that word out earlier in service, on purpose. Because sometimes the enemy tempts me to consider the work of God as coincidence. Maybe Judy Bates. And maybe the nations were at peace simply because that happens from time to time. Well, maybe we could say, but as has been said before, Coincidences happen a lot more often when we pray. How about busyness? Every one of us are busy. We all have important and pressing things to do, including the most powerful and effective prayer warriors that I know. They're busy people too. The difference is is that they're able to maintain a right perspective. They're able to understand the fact that none of the pressing, important things that crowd in on our schedule are as important or pressing as the work that we do when we intercede with our Father. Or how about being tongue-tied? This often happens to me. I sit to pray, and my words, my words just don't come. I, I, I want to talk, but, but the words just don't come out. Or, or when, they, when they do come out, they feel hollow. They feel ashy, like there's not much to them. But when that happens... There's some things that we can do. First of all, I've already mentioned to you the Psalms. But really, you can take any section of Scripture and you can claim it as a prayer for the moment that you need it to be. These are the words of the living God and they are true. And you can take them and use them to give voice to you. A section of Scripture that's very useful to us when we don't know how to pray, do the same thing the apostles did. The apostles didn't know how to pray. And so they went to the Christ and they said, teach us to pray. And he blessed them with the Lord's Prayer. We too can pray the Lord's Prayer. When your words won't come, when your words just feel like ash in your mouth, don't quit. Claim the words of Scripture. Claim the words of saints who have recorded their prayer for hundreds of years. Take those, make them your own, and pray. I think uh, the Apostle Paul would probably shout at you don't stop, keep alert, don't fall asleep, keep praying because it matters. And finally, Sometimes we forget that we're at war. Throughout this series, Buddy has reminded us of the dangers involved in confusing playgrounds and battlegrounds. I guarantee you, friends, your enemy is not confused about where we are. He understands that there is a battle raging. He knows it's a battle in, and he has no intention of ever fighting fair with you. So right now, what we're going to do In this place, we're going to engage in warfare. We are going to fight 
right now. As I mentioned to you earlier, the response, in part, to this sermon is to worship. You've got time. We've got a big block of praise coming up to you. I want you to begin here. I want you to begin by participating in the worship that you're going to be led in. But then as you worship, I want you to hear something. I want you to understand something. This morning, you are free to move about the worship center. I want you to hear that. I want you to feel free that as you are led to intercede for your brothers and sisters who are in this place, go to them. I want to encourage you, don't be afraid to get up and walk around this place. Lay your hands on them and pray for them. If you're, felt, if you're led to intercede for someone. Maybe you're going to be led to pray with someone. Maybe there is that brother or sister in Christ that is a brother in arms. Someone that you love to do battle with. Go to them and pray with them. Put your arm around them. Pray with them. Or perhaps this morning you're more at a place where you want to be prayed for. To that end, I've asked our shepherds that are present this morning, as well as our staff members, to be prepared to pray for you. I want to ask you guys that are here, go ahead and go to the sides and to the back of the auditorium. Your shepherds and your staff members and their wives, the ones that are here that are comfortable doing so, are going to be lining the sides of the worship center, and they'll be at the back. If you want someone to intercede for you, go to them and ask them to pray for you. But you'll notice one last thing. We've left open the front of the stage to you. We've left that open. Often when we do this, we'll have our shepherds line the stage and you can come and be prayed for. We're leaving the stage open because it's a really great place to kneel. It is a wonderful place to come and kneel before the Lord and pray. And so if, as the Lord moves you and you want to claim a certain prayer posture, I want to encourage you to do that. If you feel led to kneel where you are, do so. If you feel led to raise your hands, do so. If you're led to come out in the aisle and kneel, or particularly to come and surround this stage as brothers and sisters in Christ who kneel and prostrate themselves before the Lord and ask Him to work, then do so. So this is what we're going to do right now. Jeremy and the praise team are going to lead us. We're going to engage in warfare, worship, and prayer. After we sing the song, We Are Not Afraid, I'm going to call you back together and we're going to share in communion together. So let's do battle.